We're going to be looking at the life of uh, Samson, the story of Samson today. It's a long story, so we're going to look at it uh, in two parts. Uh, we'll look at half of it this morning and half next week. Um, this morning we're going to look at Samson's birth and all the way through his uh, later teenage years. It's a story about a young man who grew up in a Christian home, who had parents that really loved him, dedicated him to God, taught him from the Word. A young man who God blessed, a young man who God, uh, to whom God gave his spirit, who uh, was doing mighty things for God, but a young man who went through an awful lot of suffering, a lot of misery because of the decisions he made, because of his, the rebellion and the pride of his heart. So... Like I said, this morning we're going to be looking at Samson's start. Next week we'll look at his finish. Uh, This week we're looking at him growing into a young man, making some foolish choices. You can see his pride coming out. We see his sense of invincibility as a teenager. Nothing can hurt him as far as he believes. Next week uh, David will follow that story, show what happened with the rest of his life, how as a 40-year-old man, broken, ruined, his heart finally did turn back to God. Chapter 13 of Judges is where the story is found. Turn there with me if you would. Judges uh, 13.1. Now the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. God delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. Then from there on, the next verse starts right in with how God began to deliver them from the Philistines. You know, this is the pattern we see over and over. Children of Israel do evil. God hands them over to their enemies. God delivers them from their enemies. But every other time, we've seen one more step, one intermediate step. They do evil. God gives them to, their, to the enemies And they cry out. They turn back to God. Well, here that step is missing. Well, why? Actually, because the story starts in chapter 10. So back up. Chapter 10 uh, is telling about how the Israelites had begun to worship the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. Verse 7. Chapter 10, And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They started worshiping these gods, so God gave, the gods of these people, so God gave them over to the Ammonites and the Philistines. Well, by verse 10, they realize this is no fun. They want out. So they cry out to God. Look at verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, for indeed, we have, or excuse me, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians and the Melekites and the Manites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you. In the time of your distress. God says, I've had it. Hey, no more. I deliver you over and over and over. And look at Same old thing. 
But actually what's going on here is that the people are playing games with God. They're saying, God, help us, help us. But they're still holding on to these other gods. They're still holding on to their sinful lifestyle. They're still unwilling to turn to God and really trust Him. The other day, our family was watching one of those uh, kind of news-type shows on television. They're showing this poor woman whose, whose little boy was in danger, and she was crying out, saying, God, help me. My daughter Holly says, look, that lady must be a Christian. She's talking to God. Gave us a chance to explain, well, not that this woman isn't a Christian, we don't know, but that a lot of people cry out to God when they're afraid, when something is happening. But that most people, they don't listen when God answers. They don't respond when He delivers. They cry out to God, but they're not going to turn away from their sins. They're not going to follow Him. They're not going to place their life at His disposal. I think that's what was going on here. Watching the show gave us a chance to talk to our daughters about what it really means to cry out to God. What it really means to turn to Him and trust Him. Not just say, God, help me. But God, I realize I need You. I need You to to run my life, to be in charge. Look at verses 15 and 16. Chapter 10. He says, And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, Okay, we've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us today. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. He could no longer bear the misery of Israel. You see, they did repent. I mean, it was a real repentance. God said, okay, you want these gods, you got these gods. Let them deliver you. And that was enough to wake them up. And they said, no, God, we don't want these other gods. We want you. So they said, God, we trust you. Do whatever seems right to you. Whatever you think, God, we'll trust you. We'll stop telling you how to run the show. And they put aside their other gods. They really did turn, and they turned to God. So what you have in chapters 11 and 12 is a description, first of all, how God delivered them from the Ammonites. Remember, it was the Philistines and the Ammonites that God gave them over to. Well, 11 and 12 is the deliverance from the Ammonites. And 13 through 16, the part we're looking at, is the deliverance from the Philistines. The Philistines were not really Canaanite people. They're people we would probably call Greeks. They were from the Aegean Islands around Greece. In fact, they were probably one of the people who fought in the the famous Trojan Wars. About the time of the Exodus, about the time the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, the Philistines moved down into Palestine in force and had conquered much of that area. In fact, they were probably keeping the Egyptians preoccupied while the the children of Israel were wandering around in the desert. Well, they established themselves in this area. It's interesting to uh, note that our use of the word Philistine is to refer to somebody who's uncultured or crass, when in fact the Philistines were far more cultured than the Israelites. Their, Their culture was far more developed and sophisticated. Their pottery was far more refined. Their art was centuries ahead of the Phyllis, or the, the Israelites. Their weapon technology was far more advanced. They owned or they controlled all of the western part of, of Palestine. In fact, the word Palestine comes from the word Philistine because Palestine was the land of the Philistines. They dominated the whole area. Israel was just one of the many nations they dominated. From a historic perspective, the reason they dominated Israel was because of their superior political organization, 
their far superior weaponry. They, were, they had a monopoly on iron weapons and allowed no one else in that region to learn how to smelt iron. But from a true spiritual perspective, the reason they had ascendance was not because their culture was superior, but because the people of Israel had turned their back on the true God. Now they've turned back. Now they've turned to him again. Now they've said, God, we'll listen, we'll respond, we'll obey. God hears them. His heart's broken. It says he could no longer bear their misery. He longed to save them. He was just waiting for them to really turn to him honestly and quit playing the games. So God does something. What he does is he promises a baby. As David Roper says, when God wants to bring about salvation, he doesn't propose a program. He produces a man that is always his way. God starts a slow, natural process. Approaches the wife of Manoah. Says, listen, you're going to have a baby. I know you've never had any children. You're unable to have children. But you're going to have a son. And he's going to deliver. I want him from the very beginning to be dedicated to me. So God promises a baby. And a baby's born. God starts the process of deliverance. <coughs> Excuse me. Manoah's, uh, the, the angel, like I said, the angel of the Lord approached Manoah's wife, came up to her and started explaining these things to her. Verse 4 of chapter 13, he says to her, Now therefore, <coughs> excuse me, now therefore, be careful not to drink any wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Now this isn't just... Uh, prenatal health counseling, although that's real good advice to tell somebody who's about to become pregnant. The reason he says these things, as we're told in the next verse, is that this boy was to be a Nazarite from the moment of conception. So he wanted the mother to start following the Nazarite vows before the boy was even conceived. The, the entire life of this boy, even in the womb, he was to belong to God. He was to be a Nazarite. Now, the term Nazarite comes from the verb which means to dedicate or to set aside. It's the same uh, uh, concept as our word holy or, or saint, someone who is set aside. And, and in the Old Testament, and even sometimes in the New, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Paul took Nazarite vows at one point. A Nazarite was someone who gave themselves entirely, completely, unreservedly to God in every part of their life. And they, they had a special vocation, a special role to play in the life of Israel. And this commitment to God was, uh, was accompanied by three commitments, three observances, three vows. The first was they could have no alcohol or no product of the grape in any form. I mean, so they, they can't, couldn't have wine, couldn't have grape juice. They couldn't eat the seeds or the skin. It's very clear. It explicitly mentions no eating of skins, or seeds, grapes, raisins, no chocolate-covered raisinettes, no uh, raisin cookies, nothing. Have nothing to do with grapes. The second vow was to stay away from dead bodies. If uh, their, one of their parents died or a sister or brother died, they couldn't even go to the funeral because they were not to be in the same building with a dead body. 
someone dropped dead next to them, they were to flee, to run away. And then they had to be repurified before they continued with their Nazarite vows. They had to stay completely away from dead bodies. And third, they could never cut their hair. Their hair had to grow long. This was a visual symbol to point out that person is a Nazarite. That guy with waist-length hair, he's a Nazarite. He belongs especially to God. God's going to use that guy. Well, this is what her boy was to become. He was to become a Nazarite. So Mrs. Manoa goes and tells Mr. Manoa about this visit from uh, a man of God, is the way she puts it. She thinks she's dealing with uh, just a, a prophet, when in fact she was dealing with the angel of the Lord, God himself. But she goes and tells Mr. Manoa, and immediately he starts praying. And he asks God, he says, God, please send this man of God back to teach me how to raise this boy. Teach me how to raise this son. You see, he wants to do it right. And he, he realizes the, the profound responsibility and privilege of fathering. And he knows he needs help. Fathers, pay attention to this example. Follow this example. You, know, you have a, a unique opportunity in the life of your child. Now, this is true, both parents. But we fathers tend to take this privilege rather casually. We figure we can wing it. And it'll turn out okay. A couple years back uh, at the singles conference that we had then, the, the speaker asked the hundred or so adults to, that were there to, to write down on a piece of paper the one thing they would have changed about their homes growing up. And the overwhelming response was, I wish my father had been there more. I wish my father had paid more attention to me, had affirmed me more, had spent more time with me. Over half of the responses dealt with the way their father treated them. You have a profound opportunity as parents to love your children, to invest into them a real sense of self-respect, a sense of self-worth. A sense of security and importance. Don't pass that opportunity up. It's too good to pass up. Well, what do you do? What are you supposed to do? Well, start where, where, where Manoah started. And pray. Say, God, teach me how to raise this kid. And, and ask God to send somebody to you who can help you. Or join a dad's group. Or, or a growth group where you can talk to other parents other believers about what they're learning about how to parent. Learn how to really invest yourself into your children's lives. When, when Manoah made this request to God, we're told that God listened. That's the way the text puts it. God listened. He paid attention. He heard. He liked it. He liked what Manoah was asking for. So God did send the angel of the Lord back. When he got back and started talking to Manoah through the process... They realized that this wasn't just a prophet. This was God himself taking on human form to visit and to talk to them. See, ultimately, God is the one that teaches us how to parent as he parents us. Their father came to teach them how to father. He is the one that sets the example in the way that he loves us, in the way that he accepts us, but in the way that he is honest with us, in the way that he treats us. That's our model, ultimately, for parenting. 
It's interesting, at one point in, in this conversation between Manoah and uh, the angel of the Lord, Manoah, being a fairly normal father, says, you know, what's this guy going to be when he grows up? What kind of man is he going to be? He puts it, what will be the mode of his life? Which is really, what kind of person, what kind of character is he going to have? And he asks, what is going to be his vocation? What will he be when he grows up? These are the things that he wanted to know about this kid. He figured, you, you got God face to face, why not ask some questions? Find some things out. But the angel of the Lord doesn't answer these questions. He basically says, listen, you do what I've commanded you. I'll take care of how the kid turns out. What I want you to focus on is the things that I have told you, the commands I have already given you. That's where I want your attention. You know, we cannot control how our children turn out. We can love them. We can invest in them. But ultimately, we can't control what they do with that. And if we begin to, to, to think that we can or that we have to, we begin to carry a burden of responsibility that we can't carry. We begin to act out of fear rather than out of wisdom, out of love, out of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. I was recently talking to some friends who have been out of the country for about five or six years. They came back and they were concerned. They were concerned about what looked to them like a, a cult of parenting in Christian circles. What looked to them like parents who were so uh, burdened and overwhelmed by this responsibility of parenting that they were receding into their own little world, trying to control everything that touched their children, trying to protect their little world, forgetting all about our responsibilities to, to minister to others, uh, to serve others, and to, to, to reach the lost. And although I, I disagreed with them in the particular cases they were talking about, I did agree that this can happen and this does happen. Again, when we, when we think that it's our responsibility and we begin to act out of the fear and the pressure that produces rather than realizing that it is in God's hands. Our children aren't the center of our world. God is the center of our world. And we respond to His instructions. We respond in obedience. We depend on Him. And He teaches us and instructs us how to love our children. The way Brian Fisher put it, the basic point then is that we are to concentrate on being the right kind of parents rather than producing the right kind of kids. You see, we have to deal with our own issues before God. We have to respond to His parenting of us so that He can use us to love our children. That's the way that He's designed it. Brian goes on to say, this frees us from the pressure to turn our children into achievers, frees us from pressuring them to produce athletically and academically. We help them work hard and try their best. But what that produces in terms of report cards and blue ribbons and touchdowns, we're to leave in the Lord's hands. And I think even more than that, we're to, to teach them the ways of the Lord. We're to, to teach them how to treat themselves and others with love and respect. We're to help them choose good attitudes, healthy attitudes. We're to teach them responsibility. But again, ultimately, we can't control what they do with that training. And realizing this from the outset frees us to, to act out of our conviction of what's right and what's healthy rather than being overwhelmed by concern 
of how they respond to us, whether it seems to be working at any given time. Instead, we can really love them by holding course to what is right, to what is healthy, to what is good. Uh, back to our story. In verse 24, chapter 14, or 13, excuse me, by verse 24, Samson is born. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtol. It says the child is born, and they name him Samson. They name him Sunshine, which is probably what Samson means, because he was their little sunshine. I like that. That Stevie Wonder song, You Are the Sunshine of My Life. You know, this was the little boy that they had been waiting for, that they had been excited about, that they, they had never been able to have before, and now God had given them. The little boy that was going to be dedicated to God all of his life. The little boy who was carrying all of their hopes and dreams. They named him Sunshine. And he began to grow. It says the Lord blessed him. The Lord was involved with him as he grew up. They raised him as a Nazarite, teaching him how he was dedicated to the Lord, teaching him from the Scriptures. And the Lord blessed him as he grew. And as he reached his later teenage years, verse 25 says, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, literally to, to thrust him, to kick him, to get him going. He was starting to charge up. He was starting to get ready to step into the ministry that God had been preparing him for. But what we'll see is at the same time, the enemy attacked. And he attacked hard. And his own desires, his own lusts, began to pull him in another direction. You know, those teenage years are some of the hardest that we ever go through. They're years that are so absolutely full of potential. Where, where, where young men and women are enthusiastic and, and full of energy for ministry. But those are also years that the enemy attacks hard with peer pressure, with sexual desires, with uh, um, the attractiveness of wealth, with pride. Now, the attack is relentless. The attack is enormous. And I don't think the attack is ever stronger than it is during those years. And I don't think parents ever feel quite as helpless as they do during those years. Well, that's where Samson is as we start chapter 14. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters or your relatives, the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. She looks good to me. That's why he picked her. In fact, he had never met her at this point. She just looked good. So he says, I want her for a wife. Now, back in those days, the, uh, the, the father and mother chose who the children would marry. I'm sure many of you wish you had that right for your children. 
But that was their right and their responsibility back then. They usually listened to their children, but um, they had the right to decide. Now, Timnah was a city close to Mahanadan. Mahanadan was where Samson and his parents lived. What Mahanadan means is the camp of Dan. See, Samson and his, his parents lived in a refugee camp. The Philistines had run all of the rest of the people from the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, had run them out of the area. In fact, they had resettled way on the northern tip of Israel. They had run away from the Philistines. And the, the, the Danites that were remained were in refugee camps. And this camp was outside of Timnah. So Samson apparently used to go hang around Timnah. I mean, this was a, a city, a real city with real city life. It gave him a chance to get away from that depressing refugee camp and, and that, that seemingly insignificant, unsophisticated, backward group of, uh, of religious strange people that he grew up with. This gave him a chance to get in the mainstream of, of society, of culture, real sophistication. He started hanging around Timnah. This was a great place to be. And he saw a woman there and she looked good. And he said, I want her. Get her for me. And this is where Samson's parents really fell down, I think. They, uh, Samson was making a bad choice. Samson was, was making a foolish choice to choose a wife based solely on her appearance. He had forgotten all about what God had said about marriage, about what God had said about a wife, about what God had said explicitly and clearly in Scripture about not marrying an unbeliever, not marrying outside the faith, somebody whose heart is away from God rather than toward God. Samson was paying no attention to that. He wanted her because she looked good. Of all the reasons to choose a wife, that's probably one of the worst. Outward appearance. I've heard Ray Steadman say one time, Beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes clear to the bone. We used to uh, read a book to our children called Sleeping Ugly. And it was a great book. It was about this princess who was very beautiful on the outside, very ugly on the inside, and how miserable she made life for herself and the people around her. And the point of the book was that re what really matters is inner beauty. That's what really is important. And that's nowhere more true than in marriage and in the intimacy that, that God has designed for marriage. The, that inner quality, those inner, inner beauty is really foundational. The other day, in the, uh, just last week in the Statesman, somebody had a, another alternative for finding a wife. Let me read you this uh, out of the personal ads. Wanted a good woman who can clean and cook fish, dig worms, sew and who owns a good fishing boat and motor. Please enclose photo of boat and motor. <laughs> to post box 1556, McCall, Idaho. <laughs> I wonder if you got many letters. Right? <laughs> that should be interesting. But even in our, our society where we can't control who our children children marry any more than our parents could control who we married, especially once they've reached uh, adulthood, we still have a responsibility to teach them what to look for in a spouse, to teach them to look 
for a spouse whose heart is after the Lord, who's going to be following Him, moving in that direction rather than away from Him. To look for someone who is, is thoughtful and responsible. Someone who will choose the right over the comfortable or the easy. Now, these are the kinds of things we should be instructing our children before they ever come to a place where they're going to need this information. When they're still young and they're still figuring it out, they're going to be getting influence from every direction, contradicting that, focusing on the external, focusing on the flash and the glamour. We need to tell them what really to look for in a spouse, what marriage is really about. Well, like I said, this is where I think uh, Samson's parents fall short. They protest a little bit. They say, can't you find anybody among your relatives or among the Israelites? And Samson insists. He says, no, she looks good. I want her. So they roll over. They go along with it. Last Sunday, I was watching football game, 49er game. And during the, uh, the halftime, there was an interview. Bo Jackson, or, um, O.J. Simpson was interviewing Bo Jackson. And he asked, uh, O.J. asked Bo if he remembered his last whooping as a kid. Bo said he did. He said, yeah, I was about 16. I was already bigger than my mom. But I remember my mom there with a, an extension cord in one hand to spank me with and a 38 revolver in the other hand. <laughs> she had finally found something that Bo couldn't outrun. <laughs> you know, I, I don't recommend firearms as discipline tools. But here was a woman who was going to take this seriously, who loved her boy enough and was frightened enough by what was out there, the the destruction she saw all around, that she was going to stop him dead in his tracks. She was going to say no because she cared that much about his good. And Bo said that woke him up. That it, it, it not only was she serious, but it made him serious. And he realized where he was going and where he wanted to go. Well, here are Mr. and Mrs. Manoa with a son that makes Bo Jackson look like Pee Wee Herman. I mean, they can't control this guy. He's big. What are they going to do? What could they do? Well, what they could have done is said, Samson, we love you, but this thing is wrong. You know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. And we can't stop you. We can't control you. But we're not going to go along with this because we love you too much. They could have just said no. You know, but maybe they were too afraid of, that that would discourage him. That, that, would, that would drive him away. Maybe they were afraid that they would lose him. Well, they did lose him. They lost him in a much more painful, horrible way. Anyway, Samson uh, heads back to Timnah with his mom and dad takes them with them to meet this lady they'd never met before. And on the way to Timnah, Samson sneaks out to a vineyard. Now, what's this guy doing? But whatever happened, he got to this vineyard, and out of the vineyard comes this lion, and, uh, literally roaring at him. I don't care how big you are. A lion roaring at you is going to scare the bejeebers out of you. This thing was coming out of the vineyard at him, and it had to frighten him. I think this was God's message, God's opportunity to say, Stop, Samson. Wait a minute. Where are you going? Wake up. What are you doing here? 
Turn around and go back. Turn away from these things you're doing. But God scared him, but God also protected him. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he tore the lion in two. God was faithful. God didn't abandon him. God protected him and took care of him. But that didn't cause Samson to stop. It didn't cause him to turn and to listen. Instead, he had a completely different interpretation. He looked at it and thought, I handled that pretty good all by myself. I must be pretty good at this kind of thing. Instead of causing him to turn to God in gratitude, turn to God in repentance, it just emboldened him all the more. You know, when we're skating on the edge, a lot of times, often God will throw a scare into our life. He'll frighten us a little bit. The uh, teenager gets a ride home in a police car. Or that minor accident that, that could have been major. Or that compromising situation you found yourself in with that person at work with whom you've been flirting. These are intended to frighten us, to, to, to be wake-up calls, to say, wait a minute, where are you going? What are you doing? To cause us to, to stop and to turn and to listen. And to say, God, thank you for delivering me from that one. Boy, I was headed down the wrong path. But unfortunately, often we, we don't listen. And after a while, we don't even scare. Well, Samson didn't listen. He just holds to his course. Keeps going exactly the direction that he was going. And the situation, as it always does, is it always will deteriorates. He just goes from one disaster to another. Starts hanging around with friends that are going to pull him away from God rather than push him toward God. You see just an ever-increasing pride, ever-increasing violence. It just gets to be a mess. That's what the rest of our section, rest of chapter 14 into the middle of 15 goes on just to show one mess after another. One, uh, one incidence of uncontrolled rage after another. Let me just give you the highlights, or maybe in this case the lowlights. But he stops back in this vineyard on the way back to Timnah after he'd visited, made some arrangements for his wedding, went back home to the, the camp of Mahanadan, heads back to the vineyard. And again, what's he going to the vineyard for? But he heads back to the vineyard by himself. There he finds this lion dead, dried out in the, in the Middle Eastern sun. And some bees had made a hive in there. So he sticks his hand in, scrapes out some honey, starts eating it, gives some to his parents. And again, he doesn't tell them where he got it. He doesn't tell them he's been to a vineyard. He doesn't tell them that he got, him out of a, got it out of a dead body. What's wrong with the little honey? Well, he got it out of a dead body. And he's eating this stuff. He's supposed to have nothing to do with dead bodies. He's not supposed to be in the same house with a dead body. And here he is eating food out of one. I mean, total disregard for what God had told him. Total disregard for his Nazarite vows. And he gets to Timnah after eating this honey. And he throws one heck of a bachelor party. He throws a beer bash. Now, the word for feast here, it comes from the word to drink. This was a week-long drinking bout. Again, what's wrong with having a little fun with your, your non-Christian friends, with your, the unbelieving friends? Well, what happened to the second vow, to avoid strong drink? Again, 
He just ignores it. He just skates through it. Total disregard, total compromise after compromise. One step leads to another down the path. He's feeling cocky at this party. He decides he'll tell these guys a riddle. He bets them that they can't guess it. He bets them 30, there are 30 of his friends there, quote, friends. Uh, these aren't Israelites. These aren't his buddies. These are his Timnah friends. We'll see what kind of friends they turn out to be. But these 30 friends, he makes this bet with them that, that they can't guess the riddle. And if, if he wins, they have to each give him a, 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 a suit of clothes. And if, if they win, he'll give each of them one. So um, goes on. They can't guess the riddle. They can't figure it out at all. But his fiancée, she starts asking him, what is this riddle? What's the answer? And she starts bugging him. She starts putting pressure on him. He says, no, I'm not going to tell you. I haven't even told my parents. I'm not going to tell anybody. Well, these so-called friends come up to her and say, do you find out for us or we'll kill you? And we'll kill your father. Nice friends. So this woman comes back. She turns up the heat. She starts crying. And she says, you don't love me. And starts really pulling on him. And she's ruining the whole party. He's ruining his whole wedding. So he breaks down. He says, okay, I'll tell you. Tells her. She runs back, tells his so-called friends. And they said, we guessed your riddle. And boy, he's mad. Well, not only is he mad, now he's got a debt. He lost the bet. He's got to come up with 30 suits of clothes. Clothes. Where's he going to get that kind of money? He's just a poor Jewish boy from the ghetto. He doesn't have that kind of money. So what he does is he goes over to a neighboring city, Ashkelon. And he murders 30 Philistines, strips the clothes off their dead bodies, comes back and pays these guys off. And he's still mad, so he storms off. Well, this woman's father figures she'll never see, or he'll never see this kid again, but why waste a good wedding dress and a good wedding cake? So he gives the bride to the best man, and they get married instead. Well, Samson cools off comes back to collect his bride and finds out she's already married. Again, he's furious. Goes out, burns all the fields around Timnah that were just ripe for harvest. Burns them all to the ground. Well, the Philistines aren't going to take this laying down, but they don't want to mess with Samson particularly. So they go kill his ex-girlfriend and her dad. Again, Samson is furious and goes back and wipes out most of the men of Timnah. The scriptures call a great slaughter. This is just trash. This is the kind of stuff you'd turn off if you were watching on television saying, I'm not going to watch this trash. This is garbage. This is horrible. This is worse than a soap opera. You know, and Samson, I think, realized that he didn't want this garbage. Before the last attack, violent attack on the Philistines, he says, I'll do this and then no more. I'll quit, is what he says literally. I will do this, then I will quit. But one more act of violence, and I'll put it all over. One more sinful act, and it's all back under control, and I'll walk away. See, that's the way sin always grabs us. One more act. One more step. One more lie, and it'll all come together, and I can get out of this thing. There's a bad situation. I've got in there pretty deep, but this lie will get me out. You know, one more questionable deal. One more time with this person. There's always one more step. The slavery of sin never ends. That's sin's technique. One more step. 
And what we'll see next week is the next step, and the next step, and the violation of this his final Nazarite vow, the cutting of his hair, and the total destruction of Samson, because there is always one more step. Well, what have we seen? This week what we've seen is a young man who was full of potential, a young man who grew up in a, a believing home, a young man whom God blessed, a young man who was beginning to, to move into ministry, energized for ministry, a young man who was, was filled with the Spirit, a young man who suffered, who was miserable because of the choices he made. See, God was faithful to him. He belonged to God throughout this whole thing. And God protected him over and over and over again. And God even used him powerfully. You see, God said, I'm going to deliver... Or actually, what God said was, I'm going to begin to deliver Israel. And that's what he did. He began to deliver Israel through Samson. He started, first of all, the, the, up to this point, the, the Philistine threat had been subtle and subversive. The, the Philistines were absolutely in control. The Israelites were just trying to fit in and they were getting sucked into Philistine culture and religion. But after Samson, man, the distinction was clear. The opposition was open and violent. And that set the stage for the monarchy. The monarchy was formed in response to the Philistine pressure. That set the stage for David, King David, who finally delivered the people from the, from the Philistines. So God did begin to deliver. And God made the Philistines stop and think about messing with Israelites. Even though Israel had no weapons, Samson's hands were weapon enough. And so the Philistines began to back off and to stop before they messed with Israelites. So again, God was doing what he said. He was beginning to deliver his people. God used Samson. He not only blessed him, he used him. But in the process, Samson was a miserable Young man. We don't know what would have happened had Samson chosen to follow God, to, to lead God's people, listening to God's direction rather than heading off on his own sinful and willful direction. We don't know what would have happened. I would, it only seems logical that the, the deliverance would have been more profound and more complete, but that's speculation. But I do know that Samson would have been a happier young man. He would have known the peace and the satisfaction of righteousness, of walking with God. And I do know his parents would have suffered a whole lot less. Samson was used by God. Samson was protected by God because Samson belonged to God. But he turned into a violent, frustrated, angry, selfish young man. Well, what's the story for us? The message for us is that God, if you belong to God, He's going to love you. He's going to be faithful to you. He's not going to forsake you. But you're going to suffer. You're going to feel the consequences of your sins. You're going to feel the pain and the confusion and the garbage of the morass that sin draws you into. And are you skating on the edge? And you're going to fall. Are you seeing how close you can get? You're going to fall. You're headed for misery and enslavement. I mean, that is the simple, inevitable, unavoidable consequence of sin. God continued 
to use Samson. Even if you are slipping, even if you are even now feeling the web of sin close around you, God still uses you. And you say, how can this be? God is still using me. That's confusing. Well, God still used Samson. God is not frustrated by our sin. He's not confused by it. The future is not lost. God is a bigger God than that. He can even use our sin to accomplish His purposes. He accomplishes things through our sin. Not only tolerates them, He uses them. He doesn't cause them. James, the passage that Don read, God doesn't cause sin, but He can use sin. And He does use sin. And God can continue to use you. The the bad guys don't win. But the good guys suffer. So if you're skating on the edge, man, turn away from it with fear and trembling. And if you feel the web of sin already closing on you, one more sin isn't going to get you out. It's only going to get you deeper. Turn. Cry out to God with true repentance. Saying, God, I'm not going to hold on to my goddess of, of of money or sex or or pride. I'm going to put away these gods. I want you and I want you alone. God, do what seems right to you. And this is a lesson for us and a lesson for us to teach our children. Let's pray and then David will come up and lead us in one last chorus of Great is Thy Faithfulness.